Are you an early stage founder looking to grow your SaaS? The SaaS Doc Founder Membership is a private community of ambitious SaaS founders where you can get a support network of peers, connect with like-minded founders around the globe, and learn proven strategies from industry experts to help you scale up your SaaS. If you want to get access to peer groups, investor meetings, mentor hours, and more to help you scale faster together, then visit sasdoccom forward slash founder hyphen membership to apply, or just go to sasdoccom and go up to the header menu and click on memberships. And even your application form, if it's right for you, mention the SAS Revolution show to apply for an exclusive discount. Find your SAS tribe and thrive with the SASDoc founder membership. Imagine that you could get access to the revenues you'll be generating in the next 12 months already today. What would it mean for you? Capchase helps fast-growing recurring revenue companies finance growth without taking on debt or dilution. Whether you want to invest in growth or R&D, Capchase turns your predictable revenue into growth capital today. Capchase has helped founders unlock hundreds of millions in financing to fuel their growth and on average extend their runway by eight months and spared upwards of 16% dilution. See how insanely easy it is by clicking the link in the show notes or go to capchase.com forward slash sastock to learn more. You need to think further ahead than you originally believe. This is the part that is, I think, the most important for any company in a, in a fast growth mode is being able to un- not manage the business as it is today, but anticipate what the business is going to be a year from now and do the changes you need a year from now today. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today, and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Philippe, this is such a joy to do. Very excited for this very special edition for SaaS Doc. So always love to start with some context. So let's start with your entry into venture. How did you come to venture and how did you come to be a GP at Excel? Well, that, that goes back um, to when I actually started my career. So I always had a, a passion for, for tech. Um, I started my career in the late 90s, so there weren't many startups to go around then. But um, So I, I joined uh, McKinsey, uh, but after um, a year or two, actually, we got into the dot-com boom in Europe. So I got the chance to work with, uh, uh, with startups at McKinsey. Um, and then when the bubble burst, I moved into the so- more software and, and cloud. And actually, I was lucky to work on 2001 on you know software projects where a company wanted to move its offering to the cloud. So I actually worked one of the first McKinsey internal paper uh, on, on cloud, which was um, interesting. Um, then, um, you know, as the economy started to, to recover 2002, 2003, um, I managed to get a transfer from the Paris office where I was based uh, to the Silicon Valley office of, of McKinsey, got closer to the, ecosos- the ecosystem I wanted to be at the heart of, which was super exciting, continued to work for software companies. And then, um, you know, three years down the road, got my green card, 
uh, decided to combine my, my passion for um, technology, investing, and, and, and helping company um, and combine that into my job. And, and venture, I think, was really at the intersection of these, um, these three trends. And so it wasn't an easy, uh, you know, it's not easy to move from McKinsey to, to venture, but I think through networking, I, I managed to find my way um, to Bessemer, who was looking for a software person. And um, they had some uh, several McKinsey alumni, so that, that was a, a plus. Uh, managed to join Bessemer in uh, late 2006, and um, you know started to work with them on you know helping building the the cloud practice at the very early days of SaaS when people were asking the question of whether a cloud was a fad or not. Um, and, and then as um, uh, you know as the, the trend started to grow, um, I also started to look at Europe when I was at Bessemer, so that uh, it was like 2009 2010 investing in, in Criteo. Uh, which was a French company, but did quite well listed on the NASDAQ and started to open my eyes about what was actually starting to happen in Europe. And then in 2011, I got the call from Axel. I said, well, you know, Europe is probably a very promising ecosystem. If I look down like five, 10 years down the road, it's really starting to happen. Wanted to be on a global platform because entrepreneurs do want, you know, my conviction was that entrepreneurs want to work with um, uh, with venture firm who have a global platform and can help them expand globally. And I really like the, you know, the, the partnership at Excel and all the people I met. And so we decided to come back to Europe and that was in 2011. And, you know, 10 years later, I think the, the bet has paid off, but in a way I'd never imagined, like I, I never thought like 10 years down the road, the ecosystem will be as exciting as it is right now. What a journey it has been. And also, I love that. There's probably something in Europe that's going on. I, I do want to, you know, we're going to focus today on the incredible work that you've done with Euroscape. And I want to start really kind of from the top on the market itself and the giants of industry. When we look at the market today, there's always winners, there's always losers or underperformers. I want to start on the winners, the standouts. Who are the standouts and how has performance changed, Philippe? Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting. If you look at the, the software world, there are 10 companies that are north of 100 billion in market cap. Uh, combined, they represent roughly 4.1 trillion. Uh, the part which is very interesting is that there is only one company that is worth more than 400 billion. And that company is Microsoft, like they're worth 2.25 trillion. So that's more than 50% of the entire market cap of all the companies, uh, these 10 companies combined. And they actually grew by 600, more than 600 billion this year. So they have added more value than the combination of the nine other public companies that are north of uh, 100 billion, uh, which, is, uh, which is incredible. So you're, you're seeing like this giant that everybody was saying like 10 years ago, oh, you know, kind of Microsoft is kind of losing momentum. And through Azure and their cloud offering, now they're the, by far the, the leading software company in, uh, in the world, which is uh, it's kind of amazing. It's incredible when you look at the value increase and compare it as more than the other nine others. So totally with you there. Okay, so if we move down a little bit kind of further down the stack, on the up and coming side, who are the most notable here? Well, I mean, I, I think there are two. Uh, what's always interesting is see like, who has gone into the $100 billion club this year. Like it, it's a very small uh, club of companies. And, and, and this year, there are two companies that, that actually made it. I think one is ServiceNow and the other one is, uh, is Square uh, on the payment side. And, uh, and I think it, it, it kind of builds on the two 
very exciting um, you know, trend that we're seeing right now um, in cloud is one is the emergence of like real fintech cloud platform and payment platform. And, um, and that space, you know, boosted by everything moving online is really exploding. And that's what explains why Square is making its way into the, this uh, very select club. And I think ServiceNow is really expanding as a full automation platform. I mean, we have seen and we'll see, um, as we talk about through the, the entire uh, Euroscape report, that actually automation has been the driver of very large IPO like UiPath, very big round. You know, billion dollar round from from Silonis, and then at, at the um, high end of the market, we're seeing you know service now you know getting into the hundred billion dollar club. Uh, they are pushing their kind of low code, no code uh, automation uh, platform. On the final segment on the market side itself, that we've had kind of the winners, we've had the up and comers. On the people lingering behind or who've maybe fallen back slightly, who are the notable ones here? Uh, well, there are a couple. Um, you know, the first one is SAP, which went from 186 billion in market cap to 167 uh, billion market cap. So, I mean, still very sizable software company, but clearly they're losing momentum. And I think for me, uh, it's just because they have kind of missed their cloud, uh, their cloud transition. I mean, if you compare what SAP has done versus what, what Microsoft has been doing in the cloud space, it's, it's kind of been night uh, and day. Uh, and then the other one, which has kind of lost momentum in terms of market cap, but I think it's a very different context, is Zoom, which went from 134 billion to around 80 billion now. Uh, but I, I think it's it is a you know there's no denying that it's a great company. I think the the, lo- the market cap lost momentum, but that was just a question of multiple adjustment. I think there's probably also a bit of bad no- bad noise around the the five nine. Uh, acquisition, which eventually did not, um, you know, did not happen. Uh, but I think we're just seeing the world moving from, oh, you know, everything is work from home to now it's a hybrid place uh, where Zoom is, I think, a pretty big place, but probably maybe not as big as we thought uh, last year. No, totally. I'm with you. I think neither of us were bad against Zoom. Uh, I, I do want to kind of move a layer deeper, though, and actually kind of analyze the companies themselves within, you know, the stack. And when we look at positioning, especially geographically, you know, the big question that we ask ourselves is, you know, Europe and Israel, do they stack up against the US? And I want to break this down into two different parts. So public markets wise, how do EU and Israeli public companies, how do they compare to their peers in the US? Yeah, no, so that, that's a good question, Harry. If, if you don't mind, I just want to put that question with a bit of, of context about you know, what happened in Europe in the past five years, because I think the fact that we're talking about this today, to me, is something that is already a very big achievement, right? Because there is no way we would have asked this question um, five years ago. And just maybe get, getting back to um, you know, what we're discussing at the beginning, I think what, when I moved to Europe in, in 2011, I think one of my questions is like, you know, my entire venture career up to that point was built on investing in great cloud companies, first generation in, in Silicon Valley. Then I moved to Europe, I'm like, well, I, will I be able to still invest in cloud companies? And the answer was, well, actually for the first few years, not really. And, and a lot of what was happening in Europe was around great marketplaces. I mean, this is a generation of the Fiverr, the Blablacar, the, the, the Deliveroo. Um, so that's what I ended up doing. And then things really started to change in 2014 and 15, uh, where I started to see some companies emerging with PeopleDoc, you know, Algolia, Doctolib. And in 2016, I was like, well, something is really happening here. We have to create that Euroscape. We have to mark 
the fact that Europe is starting, you know, something's happening in Europe around, uh, around cloud. And, and since then, I think the growth has really been, like you look at the growth of the, uh, the ecosystem in the past five years, it has really been, um, you know, exponential. I mean, just in the past year, Europe went from 44 unicorns to 80 plus unicorn uh, this year. And then, you know, if you look at a few interesting facts, like, um, because now the question is like, oh, how does it compare? But actually, we go beyond that in this, uh, you know, this edition of the Euroscape. We ask the question that, you know, are Europe and Israel on track for global dominance uh, in cloud? And, and just when you look at some of the facts, I mean, the largest IPO this year, that was UiPath and then Toast and Qualtrics. So number one largest uh, IPO in market cap uh, in software was European company. Fastest unicorn. The two companies that went the fastest from Burst to Unicorn were Wiz in Israel, Hopin in the UK. So on that mark, Europe is number one. And if you look at the, pri- the, the, private f- the size of the private funding round, uh, like unfortunately, then Europe is third after Databricks and Articulate, um, you know, and the third one is, is Synonis. So you look at this data and you're like, wow, actually, Europe can have the gold medal in, in some of the um, uh, in some of the, the, the categories. I was going to say on those three dimensions, like clearly on the two out of the three, Europe and Israel bluntly perform better and can prove that we are ready for kind of global dominance. If we take that and, you know, that's obviously largely on the private side. You mentioned obviously UiPath going public. If we think about, as I said, the performance on the public side, how does that compare as the next step? Yeah, so that, that's where I think... Uh, you know, public always come after private. So when you see the momentum in private, it takes some time to go to public. But but I think we've gone a very long way there. So if you look at number of, of cloud IPOs, um, you know, year to date, um, 21 for the US, 11 in Europe. Um, so yes, US still more volume there, but now it's getting kind of comparable. Um, average capital raise in these IPOs, it's kind of, 800 on average, you know, for US 750, 800 for US company, kind of 600 plus for European and Israeli company. So still a bit smaller, but not that that much. And then the average valuation of new IPO is similar at 7 billion. So there's still less, a bit less volume in Europe right now, but in terms of kind of the size of the IPO and the market cap of the company at IPO, it is still very much uh, comparable. Um, so, you know, we're, we're getting there, we're getting there. So let, let's see what uh, next year will, will provide, but just having 11 cloud IPO this year from Europe, it's kind of doubling the number in just one year, you kind of double the number of public cloud companies originated from the, the region. So that's a huge, uh, leap ahead. I mean, it, it's incredible when you think about this and then you compare it to, as you said, you know, the 10 years ago when you, you know, entered again Europe and, and also even five years ago. I do want to ask you, you mentioned that like Salonis's, you know, billion dollar round. Mega rounds have become more and more prominent. I, the question I have for you is, what do these mega rounds mean for companies today, do you think? Yeah, so I mean, it's, um, it's got a very interesting trend that we've been witnessing, I think, in the past. Uh, year or so it's been like this billion dollar i mean if you remember three years ago it was like a hundred million dollar round was the news right i mean you're raising a hundred million where wow you know i'm gonna have uh, uh you know a big article in the ft uh and now we're like you know just two three years later it's like oh 100 million doesn't even make an article like journalists are not covering 100 million now the big round is a billion 
uh, and there are actually uh, four rounds which happened in 2021, uh, which were kind of a billion of, or more, and and Celanese in Europe was was one of them. So this is really changing the game because now private companies have access to an amount of capital which was only available to public companies um, in, in the past. Um, what does this mean? I mean, this means that the expectations are much higher uh, because when you have a billion dollar plus of cash on your balance sheet, you cannot say, I'm going to operate as usual and burn 50 million this year. Uh, like if you have a billion dollar on your balance sheet, like you need to put that money to work. And so companies are under a lot more pressure to hire fast um, so that they can, uh, and it's, you know, tech is only like software companies are about two things. One is build the product and two is sell the product. So the money is funneled into product development and uh, sales team. So, but the issue is that when you talk about hiring people, and especially in the current market, which is super competitive, um, you can only hire so much if you want to maintain the, the quality and the, the culture fits. So what does this mean? That means that suddenly private companies have to look at um, external opportunity, um, you know, to kind of keep growing. Uh, and, and these opportunities are kind of two kind. I mean, there's the first one, which is very product oriented. So where, where you're looking at what kind of uh, product uh, and, and tech team can I buy that's going to integrate well into my platform and that I'll be able to upsell to my customer base and drive that net retention, which is like one of the key value driver for, for a cloud company. Um, and, and if you look at in the past, when companies were raising, you know, 50, 70 million, they're like, how can I make an acquisition? Because, you know, I can spend maybe five, maybe $10 million in acquisition, but it doesn't give you much. Uh, versus today, when you have a billion on your balance sheet, you can say, well, actually, I can acquire a company for uh, 100 or 120 million and probably, you know, maybe half is going to be cash and the other half is going to be uh, is going to be stocks. So suddenly the universe of possible acquisition is, um, you know, is really totally different. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of companies, uh, you know, who have raised this large round starting to get into this strategy um, to kind of be able to develop their, their product roadmap um, uh, much faster. And, and it's interesting because in the mindset of people like M&A for private company equal failure. Uh, and I think now that paradigm is actually changing and it's become really a vector to accelerate growth. And if you look at uh, companies like Snake and Cloud's uh, developer cloud security, they have already made like three or four uh, acquisition and they've been very good at acquiring, integrating, uh, in their platform and then selling. And then the other kind of acquisition that you can make is just, you know, buying, uh, you know, buying customers. Uh, and so you just find competitors in the same space, you just buy the install base and then kind of you, you migrate them. And that's another way to to kind of uh, generate growth. Can I ask one concern that I have just on the m and side, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts is, bluntly, there's so much cash available today that in traditional environments, people would have sold much more, not easily, but they would consider selling much more easily because they don't have 10 term sheets at very high prices as an alternative to the sale to Hopin or Salonis or any of these great companies. Now, there's just so much funding at crazy prices, they can just keep going. How do you think about actually no one wanting to sell because there's so much cash to fuel growth of even not great businesses? Yeah, so I, I would say uh, a couple of things there. I think it's a very, uh, very fair point. Um, but, you know, we're in the market that is uh, where, where you really have the have and the have nots. And I think if you're 
kind of in exciting category and, and leader in your category, you have access to as much dollars as you want. But there are a lot of area which start to be adjacent to these categories and where people are like, oh, okay, it can be interesting. The issue is that you already have three companies that are around what you're doing, which have raised like 300 million each. Like, how are you going to succeed and carve out space when you have like these big competitors who are actively trying to get into what you're doing? And if they're not doing it now, they're going to do it in, in 18 months from now. So I, I think all companies don't have access to hundreds of millions uh, uh, of cash. And then the other thing is just like, you know, in my experience, one of the, the key driver for, um, you know, for entrepreneur is it's not about the money. It's all about the vision that they have. Right. And and they want to change something in the world with their product. And sometimes when a big, uh, larger private company comes at, you know, knocking at your door and say, you know what, your vision is great, but it can be even better on my platform and it's going to be much faster. I, it's, um, you know, I think it's a very strong value proposition. And, and, and you know, many entrepreneurs will say, well, actually, that's right. And, you know, I can do what I want to do in a different environment and do it much, much faster and have access to resources that I don't have access to uh, today. I, I promise I'm not normally that negative. Uh, but I, I, one final thing is like, you know, I don't know if you've heard the term about foie growing startups where you basically force so much cash down their throat so prematurely that, you know, um, it, it's bad for them. Do you worry that we're shoving, not we, but, you know, the venture ecosystem is shoving so much cash down startups' throats prematurely when they don't have sales playbooks, when they don't have repeatability of sales, you name whatever mechanism we need, you know, to ensure repeatability. Do you worry that we're having this foie growing effect well you know it's uh, interesting that you know you, you take this comparison with far cry you know don't forget I'm, I'm on the other side of the channel so uh, <laughs> may I have a <laughs> different view on, on that particular aspect um but um you know joke aside i i think um it is it is a different game um today i think there is there is no uh, no question on that i think the fact that you can have a lot more capital in your balance sheet yet, you know, was even you could ever dream about like two years ago, uh, changes the game. And so you have to play the game differently. Uh, and it's a higher risk game because you're spending so much, you know, a lot more money, much faster. Uh, but it is a game you have to play because everybody else is playing it. And so if you don't take as much risk, you don't want to grow as fast, then you risk of, you know, being left behind. So I'm, I'm not saying that companies need to just go crazy, spend higher, whoever they want. But I, I think you need to um, you need to think about the cash available, and you need to kind of push the system as fast as you can, without like in, to the extent that you can uh, that you can still control it in some ways, right? So I think in the past, if you were driving at 100 miles per hour. Uh, you know, now you have to drive 150 miles per hour and make sure that, you know, everything's stick together, but that's the speed of the race you're in. So you can say, well, I want to stay at 100 miles per hour, but then you're going to stay behind. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. You have to play the game on the field. We, we spoke about kind of Europe and Israel there and bluntly kind of how... The ecosystems have grown to such an extent and to the exciting time today. I want to break them down a little bit, though, because Israel is is especially unique. And so if we kind of drill down into Israel, what does the data tell us about Israel and their growth? Well, I mean, I, I think the, the data says that 
Israel has done exceptionally well. Uh, and again, I mean, it, it's a very interesting evolution because when, when um, you know, when I started venture in Europe, 2011, 2012, like people say, you know, Israel, you know, it's a good country to invest in security and you're going to get, you know, a hundred, two hundred million dollar outcome because people are selling very early and they build point solution. I mean, that's kind of, that was kind of the, the idea about what was happening in Israel. But, you know, we spent a lot of time there um, and actually things are very different. Um, and, and if you look at the, the new unique, I mean, there are roughly like a bit more than 40 new unicorns in Europe. Um, 16 of them came from Israel, like in, in the past year. So that's like close to 40% of the new unicorn in Europe and Israel came from Israel. Uh, and, and why is why is it the case? I mean, that that's a very good question. It's a small country. I mean, like if you look at the one interesting stat, which is the unicorns per capita. Uh, so Israel has the highest ratio of unicorn per capita in, in all of Europe, but, you know, kind of 2.9. Uh, and, and, you know, it's very far from anything you can. I don't even quote, want to quote the number in France, UK and Germany because they're so far off from that. Um, and so the, the re- I mean, the number one reason for that is because you have a lot of experienced team and, and these teams are coming from uh, two places. They are coming from uh, obviously the army and the 8200 unit and 8100 unit uh, where, you know, a lot of skills around, um, you know, obviously security, but also kind of software and, and, and infrastructure. So that's one. But also. Uh, people saying, well, you know, there are all these small acquisitions happening in Israel, but what happened there? Well, these companies this were acquired by larger companies, and the larger companies thought, well, Israel is a great place to have R&D centers. And so now all the big tech companies have big tech R&D center, and they have great execs who are now living and founding um, startups. So you have like two great um, sources of, of um, you know, of talent. Uh, and now the level of ambition of these talents is uh, is totally different. Like they all want to create big company. Uh, they want to play on the global scale. They're all targeting the U.S. market as kind of the, the number one uh, market. So, uh, you know, I, I think the playing field here is very different. Um, the second thing is like the skills that we're seeing in Israel are um, actually tied to very, uh, very hot sectors right now. I mean, security and I mean, look at cloud security, you know, look at, you know, the, the whiz and the snake of the world. Like th- this is like such a, a, a very like, fast growing space right now. You know, infrastructure and cloud infrastructure is also, um, you know, very hot space. Great companies from, you know, out of Israel. And then you have fintechs and, and, and payments uh, where, you know, you have big uh, payment company, big payment expertise there with uh, companies like, you know, Payoneer. Uh, Melio, uh, etc. So I think the combination of great experience team uh, with an experience in spaces that are actually super fast growing right now um, has been a key driver. And then the last thing is that uh, from a venture perspective, um, I mean, the, the dynamics used to be that, you know, kind of the local fund would do the, the seed and series A, uh, and, and then kind of the global fund would come at a later stage at series B, but all this market has changed. So now the, the global firm and, you know, like us, we're coming in at, um, you know, early series A and, and C stage. Uh, and so the, uh, basically what happens is like the local fund are seeing increasing pressure from the, the, the global funds. And so they are going earlier 
And as soon as someone, you know, with a good background starts a company, they get this like, you know, five, $10 million seeds uh, from the local fund because that's the best way for them to play because they know that if they wait to have some form of product for a normalized seed, then, you know, a global fund has probably more, uh, a bigger chance of, uh, of winning. So um, that's, I think, the, the combination of kind of, you know, team, um, great match between team and hot spaces, and big seed, I think, is what has been fueling this ecosystem for the, the past couple of years. I love that stat on the uni- unicorns per capita. And as you said, I'm, I'm glad we don't do a comparison there. That is scary. <laughs> 3.9. Uh, I, I do want to move into my favorite, though. And I'm borrowing from the 20 VC structure and style here, Philippe. But I want to do a quick fire round with you. Does that sound OK? Sure. Uh, fire. OK, so what's the favorite book and why? Um, that's a good question. I would say... Um... Like probably Barbarian at the Gate. Um, you know, I don't know if that name rings uh, that book uh, rings a bell for you, but that's basically the um, you know the story of the RGR Nabisco buyout in in '89. And for me, like this is just you know it's super compelling story linked to kind of investing in finance, and I, I thought this was a fascinating, uh, really fascinating story. It's like the the western of finance. <laughs> no, to be fair i've actually had it on the to read list for a long time so i, I clearly need to get on that what's the hardest element of your role with excel today uh, i mean for, for me the the hardest thing in venture is the fact that you know we have to say no uh 99 of the time and yes only one percent of the time but 100 percent of the time we're speaking with you know great people and, and great entrepreneur and, and and to me that's kind of the the, the hardest part because with you know, most of the message we give to company is probably, well, it's not the right fit for Excel, uh, but but actually, you know, you admire and I admire and respect what they do. Like this is, you know, they, they put so much passion in their, um, you know, in, in their company. So for me, that, that's kind of the, the hardest thing in venture. What would you most like to change about the world of venture? So on that front, I think my answer right now may not be super original, but I think if I had a magic wand, I would just make, COVID go away now so that we can resume this in-person interaction. I'm, I'm really missing uh, being able to spend time with founders, like doing these dinners uh, and, and really get to know people. I think venture for me is, and will always be a, a people business. It's about the connection, the interaction, the relationship and working uh, with founding teams for for the next um, you know seven, 10 years. And when you think about some of these deals that we had to do in the past, uh, you know, 18 months, we're only done Zoom. It's like, wow, you know, you're going to work 10 years with um, this founding team and you don't even get the chance to like spend, uh, you know, a couple of dinners and, and a few days uh, together. Um, that's, that's, I think, what, what I'm really missing right now. I, I'm with you. I would also change pricing. Uh, pricing... <laughs> It ain't wholesale, Philly. It's so often you get a seed round, it's two on eight, and then a week later it's like eight on 40, and you're like, Yeah, but Harry, it goes both ways. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, you know, that means that a lot of our companies are actually benefiting from that, and and they're able to raise a lot of money, a lot more, and and be more ambitious and do bigger things. So, yeah, I mean, when like on new investment, you always wish the multiples were lower. But when your company is, uh, you know, is raising a billion dollar round, like you're, you're happy that, you know, the multiples are healthy. No, Philippe, I want to have my cake and eat it. I want low entry prices and high follow on funding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, tell me, what's the most common mistake you see companies make in scale phase? 
Yeah, so that's uh, that's a good question. I spent a lot of time asking myself, like, you know, what what are, what are the what makes companies succeed in hypergrowth? Um, and so recently, I had a, a discussion with Guy Pojani, the, the founder of Snake, and, and I asked him, like, what is the number one thing you have learned about hypergrowth? Uh, and, and basically, his answer was, you know, you need to think further ahead than you originally believe. Uh, and, and to me, that that's kind of the the, the thing that, you know, thinking about it, this is the part that is, I think, the most important for any company in a, in a fast growth mode is being able to un- not manage the business as it is today, but anticipate what the business is going to be a year from now and do the changes you need a year from now today. Um, and that's true in particular for, for hiring. Like people will say, well, I don't need a, a CFO now. I'll probably need a, a CFO in a year from now. I'm like, a year from now is today. Like if you need a CFO a year from now, that probably needs yet. You need to start the search now because it's going to take three months for that person to come, three months to uh, on board. And my guess is that in six months from now, you realize that that's actually when you did it, and not you know a year from now. Um, so to me, that has been I think one of the the, the key learning is, uh, and that's what explained the the success of um, you know hyper growth companies setting high ambition and really anticipating what it means, especially on the the leadership side and bringing in the, the right leaders at the right time. SaaS multiples, unsustainable or completely fair and rational? Well, I think getting back to what you're saying, I think when my companies are raising, it's uh, our companies are raising, it's perfectly fair. When we invest, uh, it's high. Um, no, that's a, a good question, whether is it sustainable or, or not sustainable? I mean, I, I think what, what's kind of interesting is that if you look at um, uh, at the the past year for, for the cloud public companies, uh, actually the multiples are increased uh, slightly. So if you look at average forward revenue multiple in September 2020 versus September 2021, they grew from 15.7 to 16.9. So it's a bit of growth, but not that much. So it feels right now that we're getting to a point where these multiples are kind of stabilizing and probably getting getting off the the peak. now, you know, with interest rates, um, um, you know, going up, et cetera, you know, it's likely that at some point these multiples can potentially compress uh, a bit more. But I think at the heart of it, uh, the fundamental trend that we're seeing right now are not changing. So for me, what's more important than the multiple is, you know, are these companies going to keep growing at the pace that they're growing today? Uh, and, and the answer of that, I think, is yes. Uh, and, and if you look at the average forward growth growth rate for the public cloud company, a year ago it was 17%. This year it's like 26%. So these companies are actually growing faster. So when you think about uh, how the ecosystem is going to evolve, I think, yeah, multiples are what they are. There will probably be some fluctuation. And historically, there always been fluctuation. Uh, but the growth rate is actually increasing and the fundamental trends uh, which are actually pushing this company, pushing the growth of this company is not going away. And if anything, it's accelerating. So, I, I, and there is a lot of money right now kind of going into private company and fueling this growth. And that money, as you say, you know, is a double-edged sword, but, uh, sword, but I believe that for the companies that are gonna use this money well, I mean, they're going to become the, the, the software giant of, of tomorrow. 
and they're going to be probably much bigger than we think they're going to be today. I think that that's one thing I've learned from doing the memo, this new format of the 20 minute VC, which is like bluntly, we always underestimate the size of our winners consistently. Um, final one, my friend, uh, what's the most recent investment and why did you say yes and get so excited? Publicly announced that is. Yeah, sure. So uh, I invested in a, in a company called uh, Gloat um, in Israel. Um, and this, this company is, um, is built an internal marketplace for talent. So basically what they're doing is that they're selling um, their platform uh, to the, the Fortune 500. So think uh, Unilever. Uh, and, and basically what it does is that it enables uh, manager to post opportunities on the marketplace. So these opportunities can be full-time role, part-time role, project or mentorship opportunities. So the manager can actually advertise the, the opportunity. Um, and then all the employees uh, you know, get their profiles automatically created from LinkedIn. They can add some, some skills and, and the AI does, uh, does the matching. So suddenly within the company, you have a, a platform which gives 100% transparency on all the opportunities in the company. Um, and and it, it enables company to kind of unlock uh, the workforce that they don't think they had access to. And before they were like, okay, we need to do that project. Let's look at someone outside. And now it's like, let's do this project. Well, actually there is this person in finance who actually is eager to help on this project. And that other person who has the kind of the right skill who can, and then suddenly your projects are staffed much, much faster. They're staffed internally. Uh, people are happy because they get to work on, on, on exciting projects and it's a huge cost uh, saving. Um, and to me, what was really striking about kind of the momentum of this company is that um, usually, so it's my third investment in cloud HR. Uh, so it looks like I, my first was Cornerstone in 2007, second was PeopleDoc in 14, and Gloat was the third one in 2021. So I'm on a seven-year cycle. Uh, and, and usually in HR, you start by selling a, a product that um, you sell kind of 70, maybe 100K a year if you're lucky. And Gloat was able very quickly to have these large customer paying seven-figure deals, which is something I've never seen like in 15 years of venture for, for cloud HR. And I think it really ties to the ROI and the potential that the platform can unlock for this company. I mean, there was even uh, one of the Fortune 500 companies, which, you know, the CEO mentioned gloats in the earnings call, mentioning like how much saving they got from it and all the benefit that that uh, the platform provided. So um, that, that to me was super interesting. And then the, the other thing, which I, I thought is also super exciting, is just the equality of opportunity uh, that this platform provides in the company. So it's not about a manager trying to staff a project with kind of the 50, 100 people he knows in the company, but now anyone can, you know, globally can seize opportunity and collaborate um, on it, which I, I think is uh, super exciting. Listen, Philippe, I, I, I want to say thank you so much for, for doing this with me. It's been such a fun session to do. Uh, thank you also for the work that you do with Euroscape. Honestly, I think it's such a credit to the community and I think we all gain so much from it. So really do appreciate it. And thanks so much for the conversation today. Thank you, Ari. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SASDOC conferences around the world.